to the Everyday Life Bible Study Podcast. I am Paul Church, and I am so glad that you have uh, tuned in to this podcast today. I'm really excited about this one. This is one message, one lesson, study, whatever you want to call it, that I've been looking forward to for quite some time. Um, we're getting down to the end of Jesus's life. We're going to be talking about the triumphal uh, entry into Jerusalem, uh, where people just hail him, and then a little episode of what happens uh, during the week here um, at this. So I'm just going to dive right into this, if you don't mind. Um, we're taking a look at Palm Sunday. Uh, it's not Palm Sunday. It's actually August 24th at the time of recording this. But um, Palm Sunday is the day that uh, that we celebrate uh, today in churches. It's the week before Easter, the Sunday before Easter, uh, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem as a triumphant king, riding on the colt of a donkey, and people spread out palm branches. Actually, it was more than that. They actually spread out their cloaks on the ground. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about cloaks, while um, other people, uh, it says, cut branches and put it on the road. Uh, Luke doesn't even mention the branches. He just talks about how they spread out cloaks on the road. Of course, then John, which we're going to be in today, John chapter 12, talks about just the cloaks, uh, the, the palm branches on the road. So there were cloaks, there were palm branches, but Palm Sunday sounds a lot nicer than Cloak Sunday. So um, so we celebrate Palm Sunday. Uh, but Jesus came from Bethany, the, the chapter before. We're going to be in John chapter 12, I think I already said. But in John chapter 11, we see him in Bethany, the town of Bethany, raising Lazarus from the dead. Not sure how much time had passed from that, but it hasn't been too long. And so we're going to pick up in John chapter 12 here, um, verse 17. It says, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this this sign, went out to meet him. Uh, so, uh, someone raising uh, a dead guy from the dead is a pretty big deal. So, people wanted to come and see this guy, but it created a problem, a dilemma for the religious leaders. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this guy, uh, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Here's what was going on with everyone. The general population looked to Jesus as someone who really could be the Messiah, it could be, because he didn't advertise it. It was kind of an inside thing between him and his close followers. The people's idea of a Messiah was someone who would lead them to overthrow Rome and restore the kingdom of Israel as a sovereign nation. And the problem is that really wasn't God's plan for the Messiah. God's plan went way beyond all that. His plan was not to restore one nation, but to restore all of humanity for, to himself for eternity. But the people were mesmerized by this man who performed miraculous signs, and they saw him raise a dead man from the grave. There was one point previous to this that they tried to install him by force as king. They saw him as an asset to get what they wanted. The religious leaders, on the other hand, viewed Jesus as a dangerous threat to Israel. Look, they they didn't like Roman control 
at all. But that's the situation they were in. When in Roman in John chapter 11, when they heard about what Jesus did uh, by raising Lazarus from the grave, uh, the Pharisees were very concerned about this. Um, they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin and says, what are we accomplishing? This is John chapter 11, verse 47 uh, and following. It says, what are we accomplishing? Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then uh, the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. They didn't like Roman control, but they couldn't do anything about it. They worked hard to appease Rome and the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. But here's the problem with that. You see, as religious leaders, their job was not to stand between the people and the government. Their job was to stand between the people and God, making intercession for the people. And since they weren't doing it, God sent Jesus, the Savior of the world, the one mediator between God and man. And he was standing in front of of them, and they couldn't recognize him because they had their minds set on the wrong things, too. You see, they were also short-sighted in their focus. They were focused on trying to keep the last bit of their nation together, but that really wasn't their job. You know, and, I, and I, uh, as it still goes today, those with national focus go political. And they, they became more consumed about themselves, even more, than, even more than they were about the nation. What was supposed to be their primary objective, ministering before God on behalf of the people, wasn't even in sight. And by the end of the week, they were all against him, both the religious leaders and the general population. Now, this kind of, when I mentioned that their job wasn't to stand between the people and the government, um, but that's what they were doing, man, it kind of makes me look at today and think, man, I think we're making the same mistake again in so many ways. And that's about all I'm going to say about that. But right at the beginning of the week, right before Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the high priest Caiaphas said something right. He said something amazing. And let's go back to John chapter 11 here, right after this. And it says, look, Rome's going to come take away both our temple and our nation. Verse 49, this is John chapter 11. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. And then John adds his commentary as the author, and he says, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. And in verse 53, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And that's where we find Jesus's purpose, the scattered children of God. Yes, the Jewish nation, and then the scattered children of God. What's that about? Well, that, like I said, this is John's commentary, the author, that he added as he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But not long before this, he records Jesus's words in John chapter 10, uh, where he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, this fold that I must bring in. You see, his scope was beyond the nation of Israel. His vision extended to the ends of the earth, his creation, the people who were loved by God. His, His vision extended then and still extends to you and me. The scattered children of God were not only those who worshiped him, right? I mean, we're all God's children. When he saw Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth, he saw a child of God. 
when he sat there with the woman, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, speaking to her. He saw a child of God. And that's how he sees us as well. Not just those of us who go to church and call ourselves Christ followers, but every person who breathes air on this planet. We're children of God. But the sad truth is that not all of God's children are in right relationship with him. And so that becomes, that, that we see now clearly as his purpose. Jesus himself says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I got to bring them in. Even Caiaphas, the, the, the enemy of Jesus, prophesies as the high priest and says that it's, it's better for one man to die for the people than the whole nation, than, the whole, than all of the people to die. And we see Jesus's purpose. And so, and then we're going to, now we're going to meet some of these scattered children. I already talked about how they're us, but what happens here is very significant in this unfolding story of the disciples' journey and of God's plan um, of redemption and salvation and how it's all worked out and even when it's worked out. So we're going to meet some of these scattered children here in John chapter 12, starting in verse Uh, 20, I believe it is. Yes, verse 20. It says, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. There were Greeks, foreigners. Uh, But these people were obviously, um, I mean, they, they came up to worship, so they were converts to Judaism. Verse 21, They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, and Philip, this is one of the disciples, right? Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Um, Greek, uh, Philip is, is a Greek name, um, and so maybe it was just a little more comfortable that they brought him to Philip, that, that they came to Philip. Um, but Philip and Andrew brought these guys to Jesus. Now, anytime it's interesting that you find Andrew in the Gospels, it seems like he's bringing someone to Jesus. And they said, we want to see him. And it seems like this was a signal because um, Jesus replied, verse 23, uh, they said, you know, these people want to see you. And he replied, the hour has come from the son of, for the Son of Man to be glorified. What was significant about this inquiry by these Gentiles to prompt such a response? I mean, it's kind of a strange response, right? Uh, instead of saying something that seems more natural like, oh, that's great, I'd love to meet them. Or do they have an appointment or something like that? He said, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Basically, now, the, he, he was seeing a bigger picture than just these two guys here. Now the full plan of the Father can be worked out through the Son because his time has now come. Now, there were many things that Jesus didn't do up to this point because his time had not yet come. He even told people to be quiet about how he had healed them because his time had not yet come. He would cast out demons and they would declare, you're the son of God, and he would tell them to be quiet. At that one one point, I mentioned earlier, they wanted to install him as king by force, but his time had not yet come. Now, when Philip and Andrew said, there are some Greeks who want to meet you, now my time has come. This was a key turning point in God's plan through Jesus, and it seems to describe even more of his mission. Those other times when he didn't do stuff or told people to stay quiet because his time had not yet come, if he had done the opposite, the whole point of his coming would not have happened. It would have resulted maybe in an earthly kingdom, temporary, benefiting only Israel, and probably would have won the favor of more of the Jewish leadership, but man, it would have been limited in scope. 
But when people from other lands came, it triggered something. These Greeks were converts to Judaism since they, re- they came to worship at the festival. They were seekers of truth, seekers of God. They heard about Jesus. They knew we have to meet him. And to Jesus, this seemed to signify the beginning of the next phase of his ministry. And there's another significant piece here that's really easy to miss. I've been saying through this Jesus study podcast that Jesus was leading his disciples on a journey of discovery, a journey of who he is, that if you remember from past episodes that there's this progression of, well, uh, he might be somebody, so okay, I'm going to follow him, to okay, he is definitely somebody, to all right, he's more than a teacher. This could be the Messiah to finally Peter's confession on behalf of the rest of them saying, he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And now here are two of Jesus's disciples bringing people to him, introducing Jesus to the world, so to speak. His plan uh, wasn't to, Jesus's plan wasn't to just do good, to die and just leave. He established his church to carry on his mission, right? Uh, his, his disciples, he left them here uh, to carry on his mission. Uh, he, he sent the Holy Spirit to empower that church, to teach and to fill that church with his presence. He left it in our hands. And when Philip and Andrew, his disciples, reached this point in their discipleship journey where they're bringing people to Jesus, foreigners outside of this sheepfold of Israel, it signified a milestone to Jesus. Okay, Now the rest can happen. Now I can move on to the next phase of actually purchasing forgiveness and salvation for mankind. The story of the Gospels is definitely a story of the life of Christ and his teachings and what he did and how much we can learn from it. But it's easy to miss the the, the huge fact that the story of the Gospels is, is the story of the disciples and God's unfolding plan as the disciples come to realize more of who he is. There is a there's a whole lot of symbolic significance happening here as well. Okay, um, so there's the people that came. There's Andrew and Philip and, and what's happening in their lives. But let's just kind of take a look at the big picture here. The festival. Um, it's the Passover festival that they're celebrating. It's, it's the promise. Um, um, I promise I'm going to bring this around and tie it all together at the, at, at here before too long, but we need to talk about this. It's important information, gets a little deep at times, but the festivals of Israel are significant. They mark historic events, uh, and they typically coincide with harvests. And so they also point toward the Messiah and God's great plan. Now, the Passover uh, obviously refers back to the time of, of Egyptian uh, slavery um, right before the Exodus when they left and and God this is this tenth plague of Israel um, and he told them to put blood on the doorposts of your house and eat this Paschal lamb and I will pass over your house the destroying angel will pass over you um, but uh, everyone who doesn't have the when he sees the blood he'll pass over but everyone who does not have the blood the firstborn son would be killed in that home and that was the last and final plague of Egypt and they couldn't take it anymore and they um, they literally drove the Israelites out of Egypt um, so but it also coincides with the barley harvest um, 
but uh, so and it's, I think it's it's no it's no chance that the Passover and the barley harvest are together here. As, and the second day of the festival, the priest presented a wave offering of first fruits of the barley harvest before uh, the Lord. Uh, wheat and barley were primary crops, and so maybe the people were watching this this harvest uh, happening of the barley, and they they had to cut it the day before the festival started because the first day of the festival was the Sabbath. So no work could be done for the rest of the week of Passover. Uh, here it was a Sabbath week, and the first fruit offering was done the morning of the second day of the festival. And First Corinthians fifteen describes Jesus as the first fruits from the dead, whom we will follow. This wave offering of the first fruits, and uh, he's first fruits from the dead. He he rose to new life, never to die again. Jesus, seeing himself in the grand story, triggered by the season and the Gentiles coming to him, recognizing what's happening in his disciples, uh, all of these signs were converging at once. He recognized that the time had come for him to fulfill his purpose. And he took advantage of this teachable moment and talking about himself in John chapter 12, verse 24. Um, verily, truly, uh, very truly, I say to you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And you see maybe a little more clearly what he meant by this. When they, they brought him, they, here's this, this, these disciples reaching this point where they're, they're now bringing people to Jesus and, the, the, and the, even the festival going on. And he sees all of this. And he knows what's about to happen. He knows that it's going to take his death. And so you see here, maybe a little more clearly, that he is that single seed. Uh, But if it falls to the ground and dies, uh, it produces many seeds. And that is the point here. Now, in the Greek, um, it says, you know, a kernel of wheat, Jesus, it's translated, it's it's grain. Um, Barley would be the more appropriate translation here. But it's a true principle that God has woven into nature. When you plant a garden, you see the redemption plan of God unfold before you. Produces many seeds. Fruit, harvest, talks about the necessity of Jesus's death here. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, let me get to that. It says, what, what we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given a position that's a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he's now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection has resulted in many, everyone, the possibility for everyone. But you and me, all of us experiencing resurrection to new life in him. We are among the many children, the scattered children that reap the benefit from his death. His body was planted in the ground and then was resurrected as a first fruit offering to God, never to die again, incorruptible. And Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits of salvation before God. And we are the fruit of that. And I love how this, this translation, this NIV just says that it doesn't just say harvest, that unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground, it remains a single seed, but if it dies, it produces a harvest. No, it says it produces many seeds. Um, I'm from Indiana, um, corn country, Indiana. Um, there's lots of corn around where I grew up in Indiana there, around Terre Haute, Brazil, Indiana. Uh, when we built the new high school, we had to clear out a cornfield and uh, because that's all there is out there. So um, 
but one seed produces one ear, well, not just one stalk, with, it might have several ears on it, but a farmer sees more than that. One seed produces many seeds, hundreds of, th- of seeds, maybe even thousands on one stalk of corn. You are one of those seeds. And now he tells us to go and produce fruit. We're seeds. If we, if we try to hold on and simply take care of the seed, it's going to die. The only way we can produce fruit is for this seed to die. Not, not necessarily referring to the flesh or the body, but, but, uh, but, but this inner life, this Greek word psyche, this inner self that we surrender to him. You're not just the fruit and the produce of what Jesus has done. You're another seed to be planted to produce more fruit, resulting in more seed. And when that happened in Philip and Andrew's life, when what happened in their life happens in ours, God's plan will come to greater fulfillment in our lives. Verse 25 of John chapter 12 says, Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. As we journey down this road of discipleship, we must naturally come to a point where our desire is more than just for the benefit that we can get from him. See, that's how people saw Jesus at the beginning of the week with his triumphal entry. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They spread their cloaks out before on the road. They spread palm branches out on, onto the road and they made way for him and they honored him because they saw him as somebody who could benefit them, be an asset for them in their short-sightedness. And when we, when we live for Christ in that same way, where it's just about my blessing and what I can get from this and how my life can be bettered and improved, we are also short-sighted in this because God's plan is so much larger. It's not, it, it, it is more than a nation of Israel. It's for the world. And it's more than just for us. Yes, there's great blessing in following Jesus, and he does make life better. But his plan for us is to produce more seeds. And, and we surrender. We yield. Paul says, I die daily. And it's not that physical death. It's that inner surrender that, God, my life is now wrapped up in you. I'm dead to me, I'm dead to me but alive to Christ. And we become that seed. And we, be, and, we, and we produce fruit as well. We start to serve him as we grow in discipleship, to bring others to him. We don't bring them to a physical body or a grave where we're marking his remains, right? But to a spiritual body called the church, not a building necessarily, nothing wrong with the, with going to church, absolutely. But more specifically, a new life in Christ. So I hope you're inspired today. I hope you're challenged today. Thank you so much for listening to this. This has been a greatly anticipated episode for me because it just signifies, man, God's full effect of his plan coming in to motion. And it all hinged on his followers coming to this point. And when we come to that point in our lives, man, this the plan of God just unfolds in our lives in greater measure. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you don't mind going to Apple Podcasts and giving us a great review, if you've enjoyed this, then I sure appreciate that. But my constant prayer for you is that the Word of God would become alive in your everyday life.